Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is David Feldman. And David is a partner at Dwayne Morris, focusing on cannabis and cannabis law. We're going to talk a little bit about the history of cannabis. We're going to talk about kind of the legal complexity that we're in. David has also written several books, most recently on Regulation A+, and other alternatives to traditional IPOs. So I'm sure we'll we'll talk a little bit about that as we go. But a well-recognized leader in the legal aspect of cannabis and mergers, acquisitions, and venture capital. So with that, David, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me and uh, your checks in the mail. (laughs) Uh, We do everything by wire now, so. (laughs) Bitcoin. Yeah, Bitcoin, exactly. (laughs) So I always like to start with guests just giving a little bit of kind of professional background and and particularly like, how did you get into the cannabis space? Like why cannabis? You know, how did it come up and and why has it been a focus for you? Well, I will jokingly note that I was with a few friends from high school that I haven't seen in a while. And they said, is anyone surprised that David Feldman is a lawyer for the (laughs) 
the <laughs> cannabis industry now. And of course, I deny any illegal activity, of course. But no, it happened because I'm a securities lawyer and I help take companies public and I represent them once they are. And my first two books were on something called reverse mergers, mm-hmm. which is a way to go public by combining your private business with an already existing public vehicle that's basically empty. It's called a shell company. Uh-huh. And the reverse mergers were the popular way for the first hundred or so U.S. cannabis companies to go public around 2011 and 12. Mm -hmm. And I inherited a few of those because of my experience in reverse mergers after my prior law firm turned down over a million dollars in business and finally said, okay, let's try one. (laughs) And so I I started to develop business. I started going to conferences. I started getting a few speaking engagement inquiries. And then when I came to this firm, Dwayne Morris, which is an 800 lawyer global firm, I just assumed three and a half years ago that there was no way this giant firm is doing this. But I was very surprised and pleased to learn that uh, they had just finished a year-long analysis at that point yeah. and decided to start accepting clients in the space. And so, you know, I got into it from my perch as a securities lawyer and now as team lead of our 50-plus lawyer interdisciplinary cannabis group here in at Dwayne Morris, we're really covering every aspect of the industry. Yeah. Tell me about the analysis. I mean, you know, when when this stuff first came coming up, like what are the considerations for a law firm in terms of getting into this? I mean, is this uh, about image? Is this about legal risk? I mean, what were the what were the factors that a company that a law firm needs to look at before they start dealing in cannabis related businesses? Well, the first question is will our clients be going to jail? And then the second <laughs> question, because our clients always come first, is are we going to go to jail? <laughs> yes. And they managed to get past that by realizing that even when federal enforcement was very active in the uh, Bush administration and even in the early Obama administration, it was never against service providers or equipment providers or so on. It was only going against people who were operating dispensaries or grow facilities that were state legal. But even then, they didn't generally arrest people in the absence of other potential crimes. They just kind of shut them down. So we didn't perceive much risk in terms of our firm and really also generally our clients because of the call memo and other things. But we did have issues like we had to make sure our malpractice insurance carrier uh, was covering us, which they do. And we had, this firm has no long-term debt, but we do have a line of credit. And we had to call the bank and say, well, we're thinking of doing this. Does this violate any of our covenants with you? And the bank said, well, yes. But then they said, but we'll change it. Oh, okay. Really? And then they, I guess, were a big customer and uh, <laughs> they decided to change it. And so that went away. And, and really, you know, look, process of selling is the process of overcoming objections. And that's yeah. what uh, Seth Goldberg, who who founded our practice here in this firm, was able to do before I got here. Yeah, yeah, good. So let's talk a little bit about the history uh, of cannabis from a legal point of view, because I think, uh, you know, we kind of glossed over it a little bit. But, you know, I think it's important to understand or important to, you know, appreciate in this industry that whatever, 100 years ago, you know, cannabis was just one, one of many kind of remedy, you know, things that doctors prescribed and people took for all sorts of daily ailments, what changed? How did it come to be where it is now in terms of a a scheduled substance? Well, many people don't realize that. And we should go all the way back. Sure. Hemp and and cannabis-derived products have been around for centuries. It was very big in China back way, you know, even before in the BC era. And even in the U.S. colonial times, it was not only popular, there there was a requirement uh, in, in places like Virginia to grow hemp in order to help make rope and sails and other things and help with the Revolutionary War effort. In fact, at George Washington's Mount Vernon, hemp was the primary crop. Uh, Thomas Jefferson also grew hemp as well. And in fact, they recently started regrowing hemp at Mount Vernon, primarily just to show visitors how they used it and what they did with it. And so in the early 1900s, however, there was a kind of big Mexican immigration 
And the Mexicans brought, you know, quote, marijuana, which was obviously the Spanish term for cannabis. And that began to lead to kind of a racist, anti-immigrant, anti-Mexican backlash Mm -hmm. that the federal government seemed to want to participate in. In addition, we had business interests like William Randolph Hearst, who owned uh, significant uh, newspapers, but also had big timber interests, saw that hemp could be a competitor to him because hemp could be turned into paper. So he was writing horrible, terrible articles in his newspapers about the dangers of the evil weed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you had companies like DuPont, who had just uh, patented nylon, and they saw hemp as a potential uh, competitor to that. And then you had, you know, people running the National Drug Policy Control Department in the federal government with incredibly nasty quotes about, you know, very racist comments about how this will make white women want to have sex with black men and Mm -hmm. cannabis will kill you. Cannabis will make you crazy. It'll make you kill your brother. And so all those factors came together in order to initially uh, cause cannabis to be illegal in the 1930s. And then in the late 1960s, activist Timothy Leary was arrested for uh, cannabis, and he fought the constitutionality of that law and took it all the way to the Supreme Court. In 1969, the Supreme Court declared the 1930s laws unconstitutional. And so the, the Nixon administration had a problem. They wanted to uh, you know, keep th- this from, from becoming legal. And they sat down together, and, and uh, there was a quote by uh, one of his top aides that you can find on YouTube now that he, he did many years later after he went to jail for Watergate. And he said, um, you know, in the ni- late 1960s, coming into the 72 election, we had two enemies, the Nixon campaign, hippies and black people. Yeah. And we felt that we couldn't make it illegal to be a hippie or to be black. So instead, we decided <laughs> we would vilify them by making, by tying black people to cocaine and hippies to marijuana and making both of them very illegal and then arresting the heads of their groups and coming after them at their houses and vilifying them on the evening news. And then he said, did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. And they went ahead and passed the Controlled Substances Act. The Controlled Substances Act divides drugs into different schedules, Schedule 1 being the most dangerous, and it made cannabis Schedule 1 just as dangerous as heroin and LSD, even though there was absolutely no scientific evidence to back that up yeah now so so were the was the scheduling process in place before this and they just used it or did they come up with the scheduling process for this particular kind of political move the the controlled substances that created the scheduling which has now been used by many other countries and the world health organization and so on and you know the the hope some people talk about rescheduling cannabis versus descheduling uh, for example, uh, the FDA just approved a drug called Epidiolex, yeah. which is a CBD-based drug. And the DEA, following that, said, all right, this drug and any other cannabis-based drug that the FDA approves, we're going to move to Schedule 5. And Schedule 5 is basically the same as codeine cough syrup. So you still have to go to the pharmacy, yeah. and you're, you still have to get a prescription, but it's obviously uh, much easier to get. Yeah. So, so, and that's, so that's rescheduling, that's moving up from one to five. So, uh, so I guess, what does that really mean? So the, the DEA is saying if, if the FDA and, and when the FDA approves, I mean, that's basically going through the entire FDA, you know, health, safety, welfare, effectiveness kind of process where they, I mean, you got to go through clinical trials on the FDA yep. side, right? Like any new drug. So Same this problem. is basically treating it as a drug, and if it passes FDA, they said they will move it to to, to fuck. But that's on a case by case basis. That's not saying THC in general. That's just saying any particular 
you know, a formulation that includes THC that gets passed will be scheduled, but that doesn't open the doors. Well, or CBD or even CBD because the drug they approved is just a CBD based drug. There's not even any THC in epidiolates. I mean, right now CBD is scheduled. I mean, is it scheduled? Yeah. It's scheduled as well. There's the, we just passed, as you, as you may know, yeah. uh, the farm bill in 2000, uh, December 2018 uh, included, thanks to Mitch McConnell wanting to help farmers in uh, Kentucky, uh-huh. uh, they passed the legalization of industrial hemp, which also includes uh, CBD, which is derived from hemp. However, and there's big however, uh, in order for all of that to be implemented, uh, the USDA has to set up a regulatory structure for individual states to apply for their state to have a federally legal hemp and CBD production program, and states can then apply once that regulatory uh, process is in place. Some states uh, may, can choose to opt out, in which case you will not be able to be legal in those states at a federal level. Or if a state does nothing, then individual companies will be allowed to apply to the USDA for rights. So CBD derived from hemp will be legal. Uh, at the same time, the FDA has said uh, and they kind of uh, ruined everybody's party right after the farm bill by coming out with a statement that said, if you've got a CBD-based food or beverage that's sold in interstate commerce, you still need to come to us for approval. Oh, and the, yeah. But they just recently announced uh, that they're going to hold hearings in April to discuss how they're going to do that. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, it, it it gets confusing. I mean, you know, keeping track of you know what's legal and what's not in the different uh, you know from a state point of view and the federal point of view and the interstate commerce. So I guess is the I mean, is this typical? I mean, I guess looking at other industries and stuff, you know, how how is this situation really kind of unique or? particular when it comes to kind of the the, gov- the federal regulation or the federal government's regulation of an industry or a product or a, um, you know, something like this? I mean, is, is, this can- is cannabis really its own thing or is this what happens in a lot of places? Well, a lot of people um, kind of try to analogize to prohibition of alcohol, mm-hmm. but, but it's, it's, it's similar and also different to that. Um, in, in the ultimate legalization of cannabis, you've got not only something that people just enjoy to relax, it's something that has real medical benefit. Yeah. And, and those benefits are being shown to be scientifically proven more and more by, by the week, by the month, as countries like Israel are doing groundbreaking research that's proving that. And so you've got both the medical side of the industry and also the what we call the adult use, other people call it recreational, yeah. uh, side of the cannabis industry. And on the second part, the adult use part, there is a lot of thinking that, in fact, there's a bill pending in Congress that's that's getting a lot of traction that's called regulate cannabis like alcohol. And the idea being it's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Whatever we do for alcohol, we're going to do for adult use cannabis, uh, whatever that means in both fa- federal and state regulation and in terms of limitations on advertising. And, yeah. and so there are there are a lot of people getting behind that idea. And are there um, and and where do you think that would work, and where do you think that's problematic? Are there are there reasons that it, that kind of makes sense, and reasons that it would be uh, an issue? Well, it's really going to be state by state, and even in alcohol, you know that there are certain states that kind of are a bit anti-alcohol. Yeah. Some of the southern states uh, where they have dry Sundays, or where they try to make the sale and use of alcohol more difficult. Mm-hmm. And that may happen as well with adult use cannabis. I think, again, that medical marijuana is going to be much more available. Uh, There's very little uh, opposition, Uh even among the most conservative uh, folks, about medical marijuana. The president has said he's 100% 
in favor of medical cannabis. And so that, I think, is, is not going to be an issue. Uh, adult use is going to be allowed in some places, might be not allowed in other places, even within states. Like New York State is about to fully legalize adult use probably this year. Yeah. And it's given large counties and cities the right to opt out, and several already have. And in California, same thing. You have places like Beverly Hills that have voted to say no cannabis of anything is allowed in Beverly Hills. Yeah. yeah. So it's it. So the the federal kind of sort of cleans it up nationally, but then does leave a lot of lot of rights to the state and to the counties and the and the uh, local governments and and stuff. Right. Okay. Much like alcohol, you'll have regulation at, at both levels. So now, um, so for a, for a cannabis company who's who's operating, you know, quote unquote, legally at a state level. Um, what what are the potential implications, or, or where where do they run risk uh, in terms of you know if if federal legislation passes and does kind of change the landscape a little bit, like what happens to them, or, or where do they run amok in terms of how they've been operating, or what they've been doing or not doing competitively? Well, there are definitely kind of winners and losers upon the end of cannabis prohibition. Yeah, and some of the smaller operators are more at risk, in my opinion, the same way when Lowe's and other giant hardware stores came in, uh, they killed these decades-old local hardware stores yeah. uh, that just couldn't compete on price or availability and so on. And these larger multi-state operators of dispensaries and grow facilities have more marketing muscle, have more economies of scale, and are going to have the ability to really compete possibly very effectively against some of these smaller operators who have not grown quickly enough. And what, what one of the reasons you're seeing tremendous consolidation going on in the U.S. cannabis industry is in preparation for legalization, because the expectation is that big alcohol, big pharma, big tobacco are all going to get into the industry much as they have in Canada already, where it's legal. Uh, and the way they're going to do it, everyone assumes, is by buying the biggest operators. And so yeah. you've got, you know, these 10, 15, 20 large multi-state operators, most of which have now gone public, and they are all trying to get get as big as they can, as fast as they can, so that they'll be the most desirable target. Got it. And so, and you mentioned Canada. I mean, uh, so is this, I guess, how much can we learn from what's happening in Canada and applying it to the states? And how much is it just because, I mean, they're different country, different kind of fundamental structure at some level. I guess, what have we seen in Canada, A, what's, what has been kind of happening now that they've gone legal? And then B, what are the, the takeaways or, or lessons learned to apply the U.S.? Sure. It's a great question. And we can learn a lot that's both good and bad yeah. from what's happening in Canada. But the most important thing to say is that once U.S. prohibition ends, we most of us believe that Canada is going to be essentially an asterisk in the cannabis legalization story. Canada is has less population than California. Yeah. And so they're relatively small. The only reason they're getting all this attention is because they did it first. Yep. And they went and did a full federal legalization. Uh, but Canada likes to be sort of paternalistic in how it oversees and regulates everything in yeah. the business world, and in particular, something like this. And so they are going to have a very strict regulatory regime. It's going to be very province-specific. And the it's taking a while to really roll out things up in Canada. And you've got companies that have gone public up there that operate here because they felt that there was a way to raise money more easily up there. And the valuations, the public valuations of companies that are trading up in Canada tend to be better 
generally, although again, that will probably change upon legalization here. And so I think the important thing is that there needs to be a proper balancing between the need to properly regulate this industry and the need to let market forces uh, take control. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the Canada the Canada model it has been interesting in terms of sort of seeing how the provinces play out. But yeah, it's definitely it's definitely been slow. I mean, a lot of the folks that I talk to, um, you know, it's, it's a very phased approach. You know, the provinces still have to put in a lot of a lot of legislation. They need to figure out a lot of logistics. Um, I mean, do you think that the? I mean, I'm curious on the capital raising side and the uh, on the market side. I mean, is part of why we've we've seen all these kind of somewhat astronomical valuations <laughs> happening on the Toronto exchange just because of, uh, you know, supply and demand. Like it's because there's so few places that you can actually raise capital on the public markets. It's just put a lot of pressure and thus therefore raise the valuations on these things. Supply and demand issue is is more affecting things like retail prices of the product, which it, which it, it has. Yeah. Uh, but the valuations tend to be driven by just your typical uh, frenzy that occurs when a bubble happens in stocks, when people just get yeah. crazy and excited. Same way we had, this reminds me a lot, and this is not a good thing, yeah. of you know the internet stocks in 1998, which about a year and a half later, you know, all crashed. Yeah. And at the time, all you had to do was say .com in the name of your company, even if you were a brand new startup written, written on a napkin, <laughs> and you got a ridiculously high valuation. And in 2000, all these stocks crashed, but that didn't end the internet. Yeah. And it didn't end being public as an internet company. It just killed a bunch of companies that probably shouldn't have been public in the first place. Yeah. But these valuations were unrealistic. They were too high. Most of the stock watchers are saying, take profits now because the valuations are very high. Others are saying, no, there's way more to go because the U.S. hasn't even legalized yet. And then things are going to go to the sky. But when people say things like, let's ignore normal metrics of how you value a company because this is different. That's frankly when I tend to run for the hills as an investor. And so I think, Pete, that doesn't mean you can't still make a ton of dough. And as we know, uh, our former House Speaker John Boehner is on TV promoting these seminars where he says, you too can be a marijuana millionaire. You yeah. know? And so I caution people to be very careful about investing in these stocks. And, and at a minimum, don't limit yourself to just sort of one company. If you're going to do it, make sure you really diversify uh, and go across a, a group of, of businesses. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about where the market is now and where you know where these things kind of may go. So uh, we've got the state by state legalization. Um, you know, the federal regulation comes in. What are the potential scenarios in terms of timing and how it impacts? you know, some of the different sort of slices of this industry. Like we've got, you know, all these cultivators out there right now. We've got this, this MSOs coming in. I mean, we're going to see continued growth at the MSO market. I mean, what's the, what's your kind of prediction in terms of how this stuff plays out? Well, a lot of the growth is going to come from more states coming online. Uh, there's probably, I think, five or six states now that look like they're moving towards legalizing uh, adult use within the next year, New York and New Jersey being pretty much the most prominent of those. Both of those are expected this year, at least to approve their plan and their, their, you know, their legislation. Yeah. But, and the growth of the industry will continue, but doesn't have endless growth within a particular state. I think one of the things we're seeing in states that have been legal for a while is in a state, for example, like Washington, where they've just issued a ton of licenses for people to grow and sell. Uh -huh. And the supply is growing very fast and even faster than the demand. Yeah. And that's causing prices in Washington state to drop significantly. Yeah. Uh, whereas a state like New York, where you have only 10 medical licensees, 
who have very limited uh, supply, the prices here are very high. And, yeah. and so I think we will continue to see substantial growth. I, I think there are a lot of people in many states that are still kind of waiting for it to be fully legal before they you know, start using the product. Yeah. Uh, there is still a, a challenge from the black market in many states where prices are lower and so on. You don't have to pay tax. But more and more people are realizing that to get state legal product is a lot safer and so on, especially when you're talking about a medical use uh, and making sure that it's been properly checked and tested and so on. Got it. And, and do you think, I mean, I, I guess the one one dynamic that I've kind of I've pondered, I'm curious to get your take on it, is, you know, as I mean, a lot of this is driven or a lot of the current situation is driven by the fact that you can't have interstate commerce, right? Like if you, you have to grow, process, sell all of it within state limits, which creates this funny situation of you're growing cannabis in states that, you know, are not necessarily ideal agricultural states. So, yeah. so, you know, with federal legalization and, you know, opening up of interstate commerce, I mean, that, I mean, for me, then the question that the dynamic becomes, well, well, now I can start importing, you know, cannabis from, you know, Washington State to New Jersey. I don't have to grow in New Jersey anymore. Like that's gonna that's gonna be a huge shock to the system. No, I mean, what's what? I guess do people, how are people kind of preparing for that, or or what is the take on that? And they are preparing in a, in a variety of different ways. And we haven't even begun to talk about the global market, which, when you talk about importing, yeah. you could be at some point importing from Israel or from Canada or from Mexico, which also looks like it's about to legalize yeah. uh, adult use as well. And we have a number of other players who are in places like California where the growing conditions are very good. And they're saying, we don't even need to be anywhere but California because once legalization happens, we'll just ship the whole country from here. Yeah. Whereas in a state like New York, where I am, uh, you've got, you know, uh, not great growing conditions or a limited growing season. And so most growing occurs indoors or in greenhouses. And that's more expensive and that creates more cost and overhead. And so that is part of what you're going to see. But I think we may see sort of incremental steps to legalization where the first step may not be full interstate commerce available. So, for example, the the most likely bill, the one that's got the most support right now and, and that Trump said he would support, uh, is called the States Act. And that would not fully legalize, but it would create, basically let things be decided by the states so that if a state legalizes cannabis, then within that state, it would not be deemed to be a Schedule One controlled substance and no federal enforcement would be allowed. That still wouldn't allow interstate commerce, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. But again, remember, we're still going to have hemp and CBD interstate once the USDA sets up their regulatory regime. So it's only going to be uh, mostly the THC uh, products that will still be stuck uh, yeah. state by state. And it is an issue because, you know, you have all these states where it is difficult to grow. Yeah, no, exactly. What um, uh, I mean, I think within all this, you know, it's both sort of high risk uh, and sort of volatile. And I think as a, as business folks, you know, that that can be daunting. It can also be opportunity. <laughs> so I guess where do you see, like, you know, in terms of you know speaking to the business folks listening, like, you know, you know, in terms of general areas that you see, you know, opportunities over the next, you know, uh, year or two, you know, for. Um, you know, innovation for new businesses, new products, or new strategies. Where where do you kind of look at, or, or where do you see the, the the biggest potential returns? Well, I've been talking to a lot of people about the real estate opportunity, for example, 
I think that is one of the most attractive ways to get involved in the industry. I mean, investing in real estate in general is 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 often an attractive investment. Uh, and in cannabis, what's good is that if you buy a piece of property where there's going to be a grow facility, and then enforcement returns or things change and it becomes more difficult to be in the industry, well, then you have an asset that you can repurpose for something else. Whereas if you're in the business of, you know, supplying unique cannabis equipment to the industry, you have more risk uh, of that going away if the industry disappears. And plus, uh, real estate purveyors, if they're smart, they can, without, as we say, touching the plant, they can work a deal with a tenant where they say, all right, I'm going to lease you this warehouse so you can grow cannabis, and I'm going to finance your build out. And in exchange, you give me a share in your revenues. And so the landlord's able to get some upside beyond just getting rent without having to actually be in the business of growing or selling. Got it. Got it. Yes, I think that's a that's a smart move. Yeah, it seems like a lot of these kind of growth areas or opportunities are kind of these, uh, you know, ancillary product services, uh, you know, adjacent industries that are needed to support the kind of the growing cannabis is kind of the, you know, sell pickaxes and shovels. Exactly. (laughs) I was just going to say the gold rush analogy (laughs) definitely applies. And the other thing that's beginning to happen, you know, again, because this is a unique industry, uh, we're seeing the awakening of the biotech sector of, of cannabis. And you're seeing folks I've known for years that were biotech investors and so on saying, hey, I want to get involved in this. Now that the FDA has approved the first CBD-based drug, I now realize the federal government's willing to do that. Therefore, and again, unlike the attitudes of these big operators who are rushing to get as big as they can, as quickly as they can, these biotech folks are saying, yeah, we're fine with our normal seven to 10 year cycle of going through all the, you know, clinical trials and so on to get a new cannabis-based drug approved. Yeah. Yeah, I think this would have been kind of interesting with New Jersey potentially coming on and the and the propensity of pharmaceutical companies. I think it's, uh, uh, I've seen a lot of activity or a lot of interest um, from folks. I've seen a lot of professionals, a lot of people coming out of these other spaces and coming into the cannabis with, with their kind of expertise and knowledge and, you know, networks and, and setting up shops, you know, cannabis related or cannabis specific businesses as an offshoot to their previous professions. I think that's been an interesting case. I, I would say the one thing that I found is culturally, it's quite different. Um, so I, I still find that uh, there, there could be a little bit of a shock <laughs> from some of these professionals coming out of these other industries and getting involved in cannabis and just kind of dealing with um, you know the cannabis industry and culture. So I think I think that's that's still a barrier. But absolutely, I, I mean it's, a, it's still a very new industry. And you know, whenever you meet people at you know industry conferences, the first question is always you know where did you come from? You know, yeah. and everyone comes from somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, and when I first started being involved in this around 2011 and 12, which is like ancient times in the industry, you know, I would go to a conference and, you know, it would be 30, 20 somethings who were just high at their booths selling some vape product or something else. Uh, and now you have still some of those people, some of whom have made great successes with their business yeah. and also a lot of more experienced gray hair, many who don't even use the product, who had you know, some relative that that used it for a medical reason and that got them excited about it or they learned about it in some other way or they see a business opportunity. And so you're seeing an interesting mixture of folks, but there's no question it is a unique uh, culture within this industry. And, you know, fun is definitely a nice byproduct of being uh, in and around uh, these folks. Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely. So, Dave, we're going to hit time here. Um, If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? 
Well, you can go to DwayneMorris.com, which is our website, uh, my blog, uh, which talks about cannabis and reggae, which is the other stuff I'm doing with uh, taking small companies public through a uh, streamlined, simplified IPO process. That's DavidFeldmanBlog.com. And, uh, you know, when you go to Dwayne Morris, you can just search the word cannabis and you'll find our cannabis landing page and see a lot about our capabilities and experience and our blog and our webinars that we've done and so on. Awesome. I'll make sure that those are in the show notes here so people can click through. David, thank you again. This was, this was great. I learned a lot. I appreciate the time. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.